What do you get out of being so angry all the time? Every day, all day, my job, my whole job is to understand people well enough so that I know how to lie to them so I can sell them things they don't really want. And when you study people like that, when you really see the way they treat each other, well, you're no dummy. You see what they do, and they do it without even thinking about it. Fuck. I did it to you and your dad, and I don't even really know why. We fuck each other over all the time without even realizing it. We fuck every living thing on this planet over and think it'll be fine because we use paper straws and order the free-range chicken. And the sick thing is, I think deep down we know we're not fooling anyone. I think we know we're living a lie, an agreed-upon mass delusion to help us ignore and keep ignoring how awful we really are. I'm not down with most of the things that you do and say, but this is the part of the Venn diagram where we overlap. I agree with everything you just said. But as awful as people might be, nothing's going to change the fact that we are all we've got. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. I'm sure you recognize the grating voice of Julia Roberts, cast in the Karen role she was born to play in the film Leave the World Behind. I do love Sam Ismail's playing with apocalyptic and dystopian ideas like he did with Mr. Robot. Yet this flick has way too much Obama predictive programming black goo in it. Regardless, the Julia Roberts character makes a good point about paper straws and free-range chickens. It ties in with the Einstein idea of solving problems with the same consciousness that got us into those problems in the first place. That's what's happening today regarding saving the world or rescuing humanity from its descent into zombification. This is now the United States of Zombieland. Yep, we think if we subtract some cow farts or increase some taxes or eat more fake meat, we'll magically save the planet. In the meantime... The elite plan to send us into space to some reverse Elysium movie or herd us into mega cities to eat bugs. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. No, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. The linear and materialistic thinking needs to go as it's what got us into the problem in the first place. It's time to embrace hermetic thinking, that beautiful chaos theory, and embed ourselves into a deeper reality while divorcing our programmed egos. Then we'll find solutions we never saw before, magical languages and intuitive actions that take us into the open skies of healing and harmony with the cosmos. 
there is no other choice because here we are at the end of human civilization in this Philip K. Dick world, Gnostic times, and age of Hermes. Don't run! Nobody exists on purpose! Nobody belongs anywhere! Everybody's gonna die! Come watch TV! So make this early year the year you entrench yourself into the non-hologram world. You hear a new magical language coming from your stillness, and you reject the hypnotism of Archons telling you time and space are fundamental. Go inward. Listen to your body. Listen and honor your ancestors. Destroy Saturn. Embrace symbols, images, and myths, and go through them and into the truth, as the Gospel of Philip states. Enter dream time. You see, I keep thinking that what we need is a new language, a, a language of the heart, languages in the Polish forest where language wasn't needed, some kind of language between people that is a new kind of poetry. It's the poetry of the dancing bee that tells us where the honey is. As Gordon writes in Animistic, piggybacking on the ideas of Richard Tarnas, Descartes' reason and skepticism alienated us from meaning. Kant's epistemologic relativity alienated us further from meaning. Copernicus decentralized us from the universe and put us on a cold, lonely spot in the cosmos, and thus alienated us totally from meaning. And they all made deep experience an alien thing and thrust us hopelessly into a reality of nihilistic data devoid of the gifts of the imaginal. You need to believe in things that aren't true. How else can they become? No man can walk out on his own story. Let us get that meaning back and let's rise to the imaginal. And you came to the right place for this. This is blasphemy! This is madness! Aeon Bytnostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and, yes, meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week, I, your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring you the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. And meaning, too. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Those without swords can still die upon them. I fear neither death nor pain. What do you fear, my lady? A cage. Without a doubt, altered states of mind are an excellent way to find new types of consciousness to solve today's problems. A mystic's experience matters. But what is a mystic experience exactly? Like gnosis or enlightenment 
or Nazi or white supremacists, the term gets thrown around a lot these days. But what is it? How did the ancients understand the mystic experience, and what maps to the mind of God did they leave? Well, I'm glad you kind of asked, because that's what's on the Pleromic menu on this episode. We are joined at the Virtual Alexandria by Robert Thorne, who will be discussing his book, Mystical Cannabis, Gnosis and Revelation. All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. Beyond a well-researched book on ancient psychonauts, Robert details what the mystic experience is and why most humans, even self-described mystics, haven't experienced it. The classical Gnostics were one of the few to break through the hologram and into heightened revelation and ecstatic bliss. Get ready to both gain the map and the territory to finding your personal mystic experience. I say, I say. Eternity isn't some later time. Eternity isn't a long time. Eternity has nothing to do with time. Eternity is that dimension of here and now which thinking in time cuts out. This is it. This, this is, is it. This is mine. If, if you don't get it here, you won't get it anywhere. And the experience of eternity right here and now is the function of life. Let me quote this poem by Adyashanti, which relates to the idea of changing your thinking and your very consciousness and finding meaning beyond this cold universe of hard data devoid of the imaginal. It goes, Time to cash in your chips. Put your ideas and beliefs on the table. See who has the bigger hand, you or the mystery that pervades you. Time to scrape the mind shit off your shoes. Undo the laces that hold your prison together and dangle your toes into emptiness. Once you've put everything on the table, once all of your currency is gone and your pockets are full of air, all you've got to left to gamble with is yourself. Go ahead, climb up onto the velvet top of the highest stakes table. Place yourself as the bet. Look God in the eyes and finally, for once in your life, lose. There's an old Zen koan. I was like this. Everyone has two lives. And the second life begins the moment you realize that all along, you only had one. Please don't get me wrong. Reason is wonderful. The scientific method has benefited humanity immensely. But in hermetic thinking, there are other aspects to the mind that bring both meaning and advancement. Like the news, intuition, imagination, artistry, wisdom, and more. I like what Jung said in relation to not depending solely on reason. He said, The creation of something new is not accomplished by the intellect but by the play of instinct acting from inner necessity. The creative mind plays with the objects it loves. Art is a lie that tells the truth, honey. In short, the human psyche must be united, or else we'll get more of the shit show we have today. As G.K. Chesterton said, 
A madman is not someone who has lost his reason, but someone who has lost everything but his reason. It's become appallingly clear that our technology has surpassed our humanity. Enough of this madness. Time to find new solutions by transforming our consciousness. Time to remember that an artist is not a special type of person, but every person is a special type of artist. Time to embrace more myth, magic, and, you got it, meaning. Time to write our own gospel and live our own myth. Will our clits explode? And indeed, time to have a mystic experience. So let us to our interview with Robert Thorne. My revolution just bury our minds instead of freeing them. Encrypting evil corpse data was meant to empower us. Instead, it left us powerless, scaring us into even more submission. Five Nine didn't get rid of the invisible hand. Turned it into a fist that punched us in the dick. And like a botnet, the fear I created is spreading so fast it's practically airborne. It swallowed us whole, digested us, and now we're stuck in its asshole waiting to be dumped out. And while we're here, they're having their way with us. They packaged our fight in the product. Turned our descent to intellectual property. Televising a revolution with commercial breaks. They backdoored into our minds and robbed our truth, refurbished the facts, then marked up the price. This is what they do. This is what they're good at. This is their greatest trick. Lobotomizing us into their virtual reality horror show. And this all started because I tried to hide from society. Remember? Fuck society. Yeah. Well, I fuck society, all right. I reset it to zero. And if I don't do anything about it, it'll continue to grow in this malignant way. And that's what I'm afraid of the most. This dark future that I set into motion. Who knows what could come from this? What if instead of fighting back, we cave, give away our privacy for security, exchange dignity for safety, trade in revolution for repression? What if we choose weakness over strength? They'll even have us build our own prison. This is what they wanted all along, for us to buy in on our worst selves. And I just made it easier for them. I didn't start a revolution. I just made us docile enough for their slaughtering. And I can stand here and blame Evil Corp and every other conglomerate out there for taking advantage of us. Blame the FBI, NSA, CIA for letting them get away with this. Blame all the world's leaders for aiding and abetting them. Blame Adam Smith for inventing modern-day capitalism in the first fucking place. Blame money for dividing us. Blame us for letting it. But none of that's true. The truth is, I'm the one to blame. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Bob Thorne, Robert Thorne, to discuss his book, Mystical Cannabis, Gnosis versus Revelation. Bob, thank you very much for joining the show. I'm glad to be here. Pleasure is all ours, and yeah, I really enjoyed your book. It's uh, an incredible and well-researched journey into mysticism i agree with a lot of what you said uh and I, i'm glad you took uh certain stances on things even if academia seems to lose his mind today on certain things like there was no mystery religions and other things 
Your insights on the Gnostics are awesome, especially their praxis. And of course, you uh, bring ideas and methods for somebody to have to have a authentic mystical experience. So we want to get into that. But first, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm a little bit late to my seat today, but I know we're going to have a smoking show. Well, Bob, why don't uh, we start with you? Tell us about yourself and how you came to write Mystical Cannabis. Well, back in the, the 1960s, I had a close encounter to a mystical experience. And by close encounter, I mean that the major part of the mystical experience, that is the vision of an inner light, a brilliant just flash of light that comes and goes. I had that once in the 60s and then again in the 1970s. But at that time, I didn't think much about them. They were unique experiences with uh, cannabis the first time and on an LSD trip uh, in the 70s. But I didn't think much about them, and I didn't connect them to any kind of a philosophical or religious uh, venue. In the 1980s, because of politics and the way things were going on, I kind of got interested in history, and I uh, started reading some history books, and the first one I got was on the French Revolution, and it just kind of opened my eyes. It's just like, wow, I didn't know a lot of this stuff, And but then I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of history before that, and after that, I better read some more books, <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And the further you read back in history, the more you have to read about religion because that's about all they talk about. And uh, as I read some of those old books, they were kind of interesting in a odd, creepy way. <laughs> but Indeed, I would run across yeah. I would I would run across somebody's uh, mystical experience or the experience that someone had. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, you know, they, they got that part right, but they're missing some pieces there. And a couple books later, I ran across another one. And I thought, well, they got that right, but they're putting it in the wrong <laughs> context. And a couple books later, I ran across another one. And then I said to myself, well, hey, wait a minute. I already know what they're talking about. I've had that experience. So then I started reading books on mysticism, mystical experience. And what they told me was that the people in the ancient world not only knew about these experiences, but they looked for them, sought them out. They had them intentionally, deliberately, and purposefully. And I thought, well, if they can do that, so can I. So I put together a plan based on my own research and that I had done that far and my own experiences. And uh, it took me a while, but I reached the same experience again, only it was far better because of the fact that the way to reach the experience is meditation. And in the meditation process, the 
idea is being quiet and going within. The other times I was in bondage, which we'll talk about after a while. Sure. But my thought process were outward directed. So I had this experience profound experience again, and then a couple of more of the different types of experiences. And I thought, well, wow, I've, I've got to study this more. And the more I studied it, the more I thought I have to write this down. I have to tell other people about this so that they too can have this experience. I love how your book, uh, you start with uh, five questions that remain unanswered. And I think they're very good very valid questions that have not been answered. And that's one, what exactly is a mystical experience? Two, how does one go about having one? Three, why haven't scholars, saints, and theologians taught a valuable method to achieve a mystical experience that works? Four, when, where, how, and why did the relation between psychedelic substance, mystical experience, and religion, being if genuine mystical experiences are not caused by concepts associated with religions, and uh, yeah, those are the questions you ask. And it makes sense because everybody throws around mystic experience and gnosis and revelation and satori. But like you said, nobody, it's, well, it's kind of been hidden, but uh, for most of history, nobody wants to like uh, tell us how to get there, right? Exactly. Well, you see, <clears throat> what happened was that in the ancient world, the ancient uh, pagan religions all knew about these experiences because they had, all of them had a, some form of psychedelic, hallucinogenic, Eucharist or sacrifice. Right. And um, when Christianity came into the world, they wanted to end all of that mystical experience. They wanted to end all of the Eucharist sacrifices that were that were uh, based on hallucinogens because they wanted to worship symbols. That is to say, in Christianity, it's a matter of you must have faith because you have not had the experience. But then they tell a lie. You <laughs> have not had the experience of Jesus back then, so you had to have faith. Well, the ancient peoples didn't need faith as much as they could actually reach the experience, which they determined was God, which was their manifestation of the divine and the holy and uh, the manifestation of whichever belief system they were in. They had real experiences, and in the Greek world especially, having an altered state of consciousness was to be closer to the gods. Um, and many people, when it comes to Gnosticism, they look for it all over the place. For example, uh, uh, Rudolf Altman, uh, he thought that, that uh, Gnosticism came from Oriental philosophy. Right. And deism and Manichaeism. But then people like Berger Pearson, Eric Pearson, Ben Perkins, Mortz Freelander, Gerson Scholem to some extent, and Giles Quillspell, they all thought Gnosticism came from Judaism as a Jewish heresy. 
The largest group of scholars that have looked into Gnosticism and Gnosis, uh, Hans Jonas, Elaine Pegels, uh, Edward Yamauchi, Marvin Meyer, uh, W.C. King, they all maintained that Gnosticism was an outgrowth of the many, many mystical and forms of mystery religions that were all over the Mediterranean of that era. Then we have, uh, in the fourth group, I guess you would say, we have uh, Robert Grant, Bentley Layton, and they follow the Christian line of the apologist saying that Gnosticism was a heresy coming from within uh, Christianity. However, some, some, some cooler heads have come along, uh, like John Lamb Lash, Karen King, and I think we could add Robert Price in there, uh, who are like the ancient skeptics. The skeptics who said, <clears throat> we feel we shouldn't reach any final conclusions because we don't really have enough knowledge to reach a final conclusion yet. And so we need a continuous state of inquiry and discussion that allows many different points of view. Then, of course, we have the last group of people that have involved themselves with Gnosticism, like Eric Vogelin, Vincent Gore, Peter Jones, and James Lindsay, who think that Gnosticism Boy. is just an <laughs> old problem that has returned yeah. to be just another problem we have to deal with today. Yeah, yeah, a parasite um, religion that destroys. <laughs> yeah, but the problem with, uh, especially with the people like Eric Vogelin, he wrote in the 60s when it was only a, a few years after the Nag Hammadi uh, texts were found, and the scholars really hadn't had a chance to go into them very deeply, and various scholars look at them in various ways, and we need those more points of view to get a fuller description of what Gnosticism is. So at the time that Eric Vogelin wrote, and some of the people still today, if Gnosticism, to be blunt, were their ass, they couldn't find their ass with four hands, a map, and a flashlight. <laughs> they're just yeah. loony, they're loony tunes when they start talking about Gnosticism yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in some kind of a rational fashion. So of these many groups, I guess I would fit in with uh, both the third group that say that uh, Gnosticism came from uh, a lot of the mystery religions and along with uh, Robert Price and Karen King who say, well, maybe we shouldn't make any final judgments. Yeah, I think, but well, what about, I think there's a couple of models. One would be the, Jung Yanculiano, that Gnosticism is always inside somebody's brain as part of the bricks or the building blocks of a psyche. There's always going to be somebody who takes a Gnostic stance. And then then there's the one with April DeConnick, Dylan Burns, David Litwa, that it's sprouted. It's a continuation of the of the Egyptian mysteries. So uh, I know you say Greek, I would say Egyptian, but it kind of doesn't matter because the Greeks probably got their mysticism from the Egyptians. <laughs> well, very close, very close. Um, uh, it's hard to say 
because the fact that, uh, well, well, let me put my point forward first. I think it came from Greece. Uh-huh. Uh, Gnostics started in Greece, and they're very much akin to the Greek religions of that time, although uh, the parallels between the Egyptian religion and their thinking as far as mystical experience, and specifically this experience of inner light, are very much in parallel with Greek thinking. And uh, um, so my view would be uh, like Charles William King, he said, the heathen Gnostics, in fact, collected gnosis from every quarter and accepted all systems, religious systems, as partly true and extracted from them what harmonized with their ideas. One of the problems with that the Gnostics had was that in the Greek religions, especially the Eleusinian mysteries and the the, uh, Orphic mysteries, the penalty for divulging the inner secrets of the those religions was death, the penalty for uh-huh. spreading the uh, mystical knowledge, secret knowledge. So the Gnostics were right on the edge, the innermost secret in the Eleusinian mysteries was one, the nature of the hallucinogenic sacrifice, which was, which we know now, was the ear god on grain, which produces lysergic acid, ammonide, uh, water-soluble cousin to LSD. And the experience they had was called the epopia, which was the experience of inner light. Now, the Gnostics were talking about that experience openly. And in order to be able to talk about that experience and not be led back to the Greek mysteries, they used foreign words, foreign names, foreign ideas to put forward the Gnostic idea without using a Greek framework of speech, a Greek mm, framework of sense, yeah. speaking. Uh, and, of course, they had a, a copy of the Old Testament that was written for Ptolemy's library for 200 years prior to Christianity, and they could use that. It was written in Greek, and they could look at that and see what the the, the Jewish uh, experiences were, and they looked at the story of the bondage in Egypt and all of that, and they said, yeah, oh, that's that's our story, all right, but <laughs> we, we can't tell it that way, so we have to think of another way. And I think the first, the first uh, inklings of Gnosticism came close to the time that Aristotle was teaching Alexander the Great, uh, when he was a young child and growing up, and they followed Alexander the Great all the way to India, where they learned some of the ways that the Hindus were also 
reaching the experience of inner light, the same mystical experience. So they gather some of their ideas from there. And between Greece and uh, India, of course, is Babylon and the Zoroastrians and the Mithraists. And all those had similar types of ideas. So they gathered a way of speaking from all of those groups to put forward their particular view of the world, their uh, cosmology, uh, the demiurge, and all of these kinds of ideas. And they did it in a way that it was not divulging the inner mystery secrets of any other religion. They could put it in their own framework of thinking. And of course, uh, the uh, psychedelic part of it that goes all the way back to uh, shamanism. Uh, it was the shaman who first used uh, plants to uh, heal the sick, sick uh, in the tribe, to find uh, lost or stolen property, to uh, hear the secret plans of an enemy to the tribe or group of people. And slowly but surely, the witch doctor and the medicine man became the leader of the group, the leader of the tribes. And that idea of keeping secret, secret the nature of the sacrifice went into paganism. And the pagan priests all kept not only the secrets of their hallucinogens secret, they kept all knowledge secret. They kept every, every secret thing they could away from the people. That way, the people would look up to them and look up to them as very wise men. They just weren't teachers. And we didn't get into the really teaching thing until a later antiquity with people like uh, Plato and Aristotle uh, founding the various schools in, uh, in Greece. And in Alexandria, we had uh, the library with some 700,000 scrolls of all of the accumulated knowledge of the ancient peoples. And that's where people begin to get smarter and to learn more about what the secret ingredients were for all those uh, <laughs> mystical religions. When Judaism, well, I've had to tell you about the story of Moses and the burning bush first, but as just a, a short version, the light of the burning bush is not outside you, shining at you. The light of the burning bush is in the mind. Yeah. And the only way to see uh, the light of the bush is to first put the bush inside the mind. And uh, many of us use bongs for that. <laughs> I'm sure Moses Without, was taking some of that smoke for himself to get uh, in an altered state of mind. <laughs> they, they knew about cannabis going back oh, yeah. many thousands of years. They're finding it in grave sites in Mongolia, oh, I mean, 
going way back where shamans would be buried with a small bag of good uh, hemp <laughs> grass. And all of that knowledge came south from uh, Central Asia with the Aryans who migrated southward into uh, the areas of the Mediterranean and into India. But so slowly but surely, all those ideas percolated down to the people and the people understood them. And we learn about uh, from the 1960s, we <clears throat> from uh, uh, Gordon Lawson, who wrote uh, Soma, and John Allegro, who wrote the book, uh, uh, The Sacred Cross, Mushroom and Sacred Cross. And uh, we learned that the Soma and the Homa and the Mana were all the Ammonite and Muscaria mushrooms. And we learned about how the uh, cannabis was very ancient. And so the Jews know about that too. But when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, because of the experience of Ezekiel, they ran all of that knowledge out of Judaism. They, they kept people from learning about uh, smoking in the censers. And I could go through the Bible and... Uh, Talk about how the many times in uh, the Old Testament the Bible refers to smoking cannabis. Oh yeah, a lot. Yeah, we're both channeling our inner Chris Bennett. <laughs> yeah, he's done yeah. a lot of work on that. <laughs> yeah, uh, the first the first uh, references were in Leviticus, where Nabhu, Nab, Nadav, and Abhu, the sons of Aaron, took. Either of them, his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord. Of course, uh, how can something be strange to God when God created it? <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, but there's all kinds of uh, uh, references to the priest using censers uh, to. Uh, smoke cannabis to burn the incense. I think incense, the idea of calling cannabis incense started with the Zoroastrians and so on, yeah. the priests over there, because they burned large quantities of it. Uh, they didn't smoke, smoke a little bit in a sensor. They burned large quantities of it. And that came south too from the Aryans because we know that the Scythians burnt a little, uh, burnt, built a little sweat lodge out of canvas, put hot rocks in there, and would throw the cannabis on the hot rocks and burn it inside this little enclosure. We call that contact high these days. Uh, they called it fumigation in the ancient world. But it served the same principle. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha stoned. <laughs> and uh, so slowly the idea of burning it, burning incense in a sensor, a small uh, container, uh, went throughout the ancient world and was picked up by the, uh, the Jews in Babylon. And they, like I say, though, when they came back from 
uh, Babylon, they rejected all of that and wanted to run all of that out of Judaism, which they did. And they got all Protestant on us, yeah. Something like that, yeah. (laughs) But Bob, uh, Bob, uh, I want to uh, maybe focus on the Gnostics. Again, your book, uh, such a wonderful historical journey from shamanism. Your chapter on shamanism is excellent to how this evolved into the mysteries, which is basically shamanism for everybody who's desire it. And of course, the Gnostics are a climax of the mystery religions. And as you said, but I want to talk a little bit about Gnosis, especially I loved, um, again, your chapter on the waters. You yourself write one of the most important signposts in the inner journey is the waters. And of course, the waters is so important to Gnosticism, right? The secret book of John talks about the watery light of the aeons and how we must rise with it. Uh, and yes. the Gnostics were obsessed with baptism from the Sethian baptism to the Mendeans, uh, all yeah. this other stuff. And, and I love how you talk about how Mithras and Moses both, and interestingly enough, got water from a rock. Uh, and how in the apocalypse of Peter, you're right. Uh, Jesus calls the bishops dry canals. They have no watery substance. They are dry and all that. But maybe you could tell us about how waters, inner light, and gnosis relate to each other. Now that we've talked about smoke, let's talk about smoke on the water, fire in the sky. Yeah. Um, Well, most of the people out there listening to this today, unless they're, uh, well, over what, 40 or 50 years old, uh, we're not around for the psychedelic 1960s and 70s and into uh-huh. the 80s. But if the young people want, they can go to an older person and say, hey, did you do LSD back then? <laughs> and, and then ask them, did you ever experience how the walls seem to move and yeah. undulate? Oh, yeah. They're brick walls. They look like they're moving like a tapestry in a slow breeze and every single one of them that did lsd i can guarantee it will say oh yeah many times many times and the thing is the gnostics developed the way of seeing that on the horizontal level Mm -hmm. and they call their waters pneuma which means air from where we get the idea of pneumatic uh, air and it was a representation how how the air was moving and rolling and flowing and made the round of the water or the floor in front of them seem to roll like water. And this is one of the signposts on the inner journey because you can't find those waters simply by smoking pot. You have to quiet the mind. You have to uh, uh, still the mind to where uh, you're not thinking about anything else. Very calmness. That's what the meditation practice is. The the Greeks called it apathia, which was the stoic art of holding the mind without any emotions. And that's part of what meditation practice is, is uh, removing emotions from uh, from conscious awareness. And it, it's <clears throat> parting the waters then 
is reaching that experience. When you part the waters, when you pass over the waters, uh, and that's talked about in all the ancient religions too. The, uh, the Buddhists talk about crossing over to Nirvana. Uh, the Hindus talk about uh, crossing the waters. Um, all of the ancient religions relate to that, and they all relate to uh, reaching that experience of inner light, especially all through the Nagamati. Like uh, in the Gospel of Egyptians, it says, I have armed myself with the armor of light. I have become the light. And the Reg uh -huh. Vita was, was saying, bright are these somas blent with milk, with light that flashes brilliantly. Uh, the Nag Hammadi in the hypostasis of the Archon says, then all of the children of the light will be truly acquainted with the truth and with their root. By that they meant that the Pluroma was a place of light and it was the place where they came from. And in order to get back to the Pluroma, one first had to have this experience of light to really engage with what they were, beings of light uh, that came down from the Pleroma. And then they had to learn a password to, to go through the spheres. When somebody calls themselves a Gnostic today, what they're saying is that they actually believe that the world is flat and it's surrounded, it's inside <laughs> of seven concentric spheres getting larger and larger. And at each one of those spheres, there's an archon. And you, when you meet the archon after you die, you have to have a password. For example, they might say, I am a child of the light. And the archon would say, oh, yes, pass on here. <laughs> like a the bouncer. Come on in, sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the next sphere you might have to say something like, I am returning to the pleroma of light. Oh, yes, go right ahead. <laughs> but if they said the wrong thing, they had to go back down because the archons wanted to continue the world process and didn't want everybody to go back to the pleroma. So that was their cosmological view. But that flat earth, we're at the center of the world because of our God. I call it the egocentric viewpoint of the world. <laughs> uh, uh, that ended in 1552 when Ferdinand Magellan sailed west and then came back from the east and right. proved that the world was round. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, like in the, the uh, <clears throat> Nag Hammadi library in Elojans, it says, I turned from myself and saw the light surrounding me and the good that was in me, and I became divine. Mm -hmm. This experience of mystical experience of inner light has three separate manifestations to it. And what is that really? Well, from my point of view, having that experience, I say that it is the breakdown of the barrier between our conscious mind and our subconscious mind and our autonomic nervous system. And that barrier is there to protect us from the energy 
connection on both sides of the barrier because I think our long-term memory and uh, the autonomic nervous system works on a different frequency of energy in the mind. And when that barrier is breached, all of those energy matrices mix and combine, which gives you this brilliant bang flash of light that just comes and goes. In the next few seconds after that brilliant flash of light, comes a feeling that comes out of a person that's just the most awesome feeling of um, the Buddhists call it bliss, but it's like love and uh, contentment of calmness of a feeling that as the Gnostics sometimes or the uh, mystics sometimes say a threshold had been crossed, a, um, a defining moment in life has happened and everything back before that moment no longer has power or sway over us. And in the ancient world, they call this the experience of rejuvenation or regeneration. And the Christians turn that into rebirth. And they say it only happened <laughs> to one person one time. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it happened to everybody in the ancient world who were in the ancient religions who reached that experience. It's, it's just the most awesome feeling, and it comes right out of you, and it, it makes you feel like, yeah, this is the real me. This is this is who I am inside. Yeah. And a few moments, a few man, moments after that experience, comes the experience of knowledge gained in the experience, and um, that takes a particular understanding too because it doesn't come from somewhere outside of you it's all our own knowledge that we have but it's rearranged reconfigured and comes together in ways that we never thought it could be the various ideas and thoughts that come to mind if you're a person who has a gift for um music or something like that it might be the lyrics of a whole song you just right there you see it and it's oh yeah i gotta write that down right quick and it comes <laughs> out to be a great song but it's all our own knowledge looked at from a different point of view that point of view of the inner mind and if we were to have if that barrier would between our conscious mind and our subconscious mind were to be permanently gone, we would be blinded to the outside world. We wouldn't be able to see it. It'd just be all light to us. <laughs> and there's only been one person that's ever had that barrier absolutely closed. I have a video somewhere. It's one man had no long-term memory. He had to be taught every day what to do and how to do it. Uh-huh. If we were to have all of our memory in conscious awareness all the time, we wouldn't be able to do anything. We'd have every single memory memory we've ever had, and every especially all those memories that have strong, powerful emotions with them. They'd all be right there in conscious awareness constantly all day, and we wouldn't know what to think. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, yeah Aldous Huxley and his famous story where he did peyote and he's high communing with the spirit world. And he's like, oh, man, I got all these dirty dishes in my sink. I have to come down sometime because I got to wash the dishes. You know, the material world 
beckons us. But uh, but yeah. Bob, I also wanted to ask you too, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, on this show and in your book, of course, there's plenty of evidence that there were mind-altering substances with the Gnostics. Uh, we can talk about Marcus the Magician, the Book of You. Uh, it seems to be hinted or there in several of the Sethian texts and all that. So they, they were using, unfortunately, we can't reconstruct this. But uh, for the audience, I love how Bob, it's page 258. He has this 10 commandments of meditation. So you kind of give us the blueprint of and lead us, especially with your rug ritual, which I love too, of how to have a mystical experience with cannabis. But my next question would be, um, you also say that there are four types of mystical experiences. These are gnosis or the inner light, catharsis, ecstasy, and kundalini. Do you want to talk, tell us about those or which way do you want to go? Um, in one part there, I also say that uh, on a scale of one to ten, uh, the experience of inner light is a nine. Yeah. And the experience of catharsis, which I also had one time, uh, is probably a seven or eight. And that ecstasy is a very minor experience that one has when meditating and going into that space of mind where uh, a mystical experience can happen. It's a smaller threshold type experience, but it also has happened to people uh, in the just naturally. And when people talk about it, they talk about a very close connection with everything around them. And usually they're out of doors and they just have this wonderful feeling that they are part of everything, the grass, grass, the rocks, the trees, the sky, it's all one at one time. Basically, that's the LSD trip too. The feeling that, yeah, we're all the same and we all are because we all are energy. We are energy beings having physical experiences in a material con uh, uh, material uh, cosmos. And so the the experience of catharsis was a strictly a, uh, experience that the Orphics taught. And uh, it's quite profound. And I explained it in my book. Uh, it's easier to read it than it is to, I think, to uh, speak it. But then there's Kundalini, and uh, there's only been one person that's uh, achieved kund Kundalini in our time, and that's Gopi Krishna. And the way he talks about it is uh, it's a very profound experience he had. It took him a while to get it under control and, and to be able to express it. So I leave the uh, numbers uh, 6 or 5 and 10 open so that it might fit into one of those categories. But like I say, uh, the experience of inner light is definitely up there to nine and, uh, and catharsis below that slightly. And there's many grades of ecstasy. It's hard to pin it down and it's hard to have that experience in a deliberate manner. 
because it's it's part of the threshold experiences when someone is meditating and almost gets to that state of mind of consciousness where uh, the larger experiences of uh, catharsis or the experience of inner light can happen. No, that makes sense. Uh, Yeah, but it's good to have this catalog because, again, your book does a great job of dispelling some of our preconceptions and how things are and offering a pathway as well as uh, accurately breaking down history the 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 well the journey of mysticism which of course as you write ended probably around when the middle ages started with the rise of the church the fall of the mystery religions the persecution of the gnostics and kind of went underground if we would maybe we could uh get into that but uh oh also like too bob uh very astutely you say that in the pista sophia when sophia is fallen from the treasury of light and she's out there in the 13th aeon all uh sad and whatever the two things that she's always uh invoking are the mysteries and the upper light so even the pista sophia is giving us the map and the secret language and the rituals and the prayers for us to have gnosis sophia is telling us that so again i love sharing these insights but uh, uh vance do you have a question for bob oh yeah um i was wondering why do you think it's so hard for people to have mystical experiences without the aid of you know some kind of substance is it uh how did we wind up this way or the toilet no, just <laughs> the porcelain god yeah 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 um I don't know. I think it's uh, with cannabis anyway. I'm not sure about all the other hallucinogens in this way. But with cannabis, they have their own special CD1 receptors in the brain. Uh, And when being stoned, all those receptors are activated. And uh, when the experience of light happens, I have two theories of how that happens. One is the breakdown of the barrier from the side of the meditator, from the conscious side, but from the subconscious side, it's when a a tremendous number of neurons in the brain fire all at the same time and overwhelm the barrier from the inside. And it might be a combination of those two things. That's that's interesting. And do you think there are other ways besides uh, psychoactive substances that can trigger trigger that type of thing? Maybe a particular intense sensory experience, or well, lights? they've tried those. <laughs> they've tried those, and they haven't worked. And we might say that the Hindus. Uh, have been doing cannabis and meditation for two, almost 3,000 years, and they have not gotten back to the experience of light that the Reg Vita and the Atharva Vita and all the Vedas talk about because they have been not been doing meditation correctly. And the Buddhists too. Now, the Buddhists have a tradition which says that from the time of the Buddha, In 2,500 years, the experience of the Buddha would return to the world. And guess what? It's been exactly 2,500 years. Mm, And yes, the experience that the Buddha had is back in the world. 
I don't know, it's going to be kind of a disappointment for some Buddhists because they say that when you have this experience, you will know everything that there is to know. But that's not quite the way it happens. Uh, I think that came about because after so many, uh, like a hundred years after the Buddha had died and nobody had regained the experience of inner light, the teachers of Buddhism, you know, the teacher of the way to that experience, who really didn't know how to get to that experience, expanded the goal beyond reality. <laughs> the goal of you will know everything there is to know, so on. I think some Zen Buddhists would say, there is nothing to know. <laughs> so there, yeah, there yeah. you know everything there is to know because there is nothing to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The opposite extreme. And as you write, uh, yeah, you says that cannabis doesn't cause a mystical experience. It only allows it. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Because you have to put yourself in the right frame of mind. Uh, and when you think about the Gnostics, too, uh, in the Eleusinian Mysteries, they drank the Kaikion, which we suppose now was a form of LSD in the uh, in the uh, Dionysian mysteries, they drank wine laced with other substances, and in the uh, uh, in the Hermetic religions, they drank the ambrosia from the crater, and uh, that's supposedly, I think, a psychedelic too, if they were consistent with the other religions. And all of those substances were very powerful. In fact, the wines, uh, the wines of Dionysus were said to have uh, been uh, caused permanent brain damage. And uh, let, me, uh, let me read this here. It says, uh, the word for drunkenness in Greek designates a state of breathing madness. We hear of some wines so strong that they could be diluted with 20 parts of water and required at least eight parts of water to be drunk safely. Or, according to a report, drinking of certain wines straight actually caused permanent brain damage, in some cases even death. So we're not talking about Vin Rosé, we're talking about some uh, Datura or um, um, belladonna or some kind of poisons like that diluted way down the gnostics were different because their drug delivery method was not drinking a kekion or a wine it was anointing the body with a hallucinogenic substance that we would be absorbed through the skin Therefore, what we learn from that is that's a small amount of cannabis with the right meditation practice is what will result in a genuine mystical experience. The idea of heroic doses, that's good when you're doing tryptamines and so on or some chemicals like that. But to reach the mystical experience, it only takes a small amount of cannabis. So the trouble with today is that 
a lot of people don't know how to get stoned or even know what stoned is. They exactly. think, must, I must have some, I, I can't feel it physically, so I, <laughs> I must not be stoned. Jeez. <laughs> they were stoned 10 hours ago when they started smoking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they don't feel it physically. They say they're not stoned. No, stoned is in, in the mind only. And the only way they'll ever find out if they're stoned is not to do any drugs for about a month and a half and then sit down with one joint and smoke it. And then you, <laughs> if you can't tell the difference, then you'll never know yeah, what yeah, stoned yeah, is. <laughs> Hey, does this mean that Jesus uh, was having mystical experiences when Mary Magdalene anointed his feet with the quote-unquote oil? Uh, no, that was placebo oil. <laughs> he didn't need By it. By that time in Judaism, there was no drug use. Oh. So, so it stopped before that time? Oh, yeah. At the, uh, when, the, when the Jews returned from, uh, from the Babylonian captivity, because of the experience of Ezekiel, which I think he had in Babylon, uh, when they returned and looked at that literature, they kept it out of the Bible for a couple of hundred years. And it didn't come back. They didn't put it back into the Bible in, uh, except close to biblical times. And then right after it, they wrote a new book called Daniel. And in Ezekiel, you hear about the uh, the Merkabah Chayat, the, uh, the chariot of God. And then in Daniel, you read about how he anointed himself and how he, and so on. And all of that was not anywhere as in between uh, the return from uh, Babylon and well, it's like, what is it, Hezekiah, I think it was until the time of biblical times. And I think those, those, those two chapters in the Bible were added because of all of the mystery religions that were so popular during that, those times so that the Jews could say, yeah, we had this old experience. Yeah, we, we already do that. But we have this new one now. <laughs> but they didn't because the people really didn't have it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, even the Gospel of Philip talks about the Lord did everything in a mystery of baptism and a chrism. So they're not the Valentinians were already talking about, like you said, this anointing, the baptism, the water of light. It's all there. Yeah. And uh, they, that's why the uh, Gnostics say that the, the Christians go down into the water and come up having received nothing and still claim to be Christians. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's because they use H2O, and H2O is the wrong form of water to reach a mystical experience or have a true baptism. The true baptism was the waters of the flow, which I call the, the psychedelic waters, how, how the walls can move and breathe, how the... The ground in front of you can roll and flow. Right. Don't you call this synesthesia, the blending of sense perception? Did I pronounce mm. it right? Don't know. Maybe. <laughs> in the book, I call it the flow, uh, the yeah. hallucinogenic flow as compared to H2O. And the Christians are in, like I say in the book, they're in deep trouble because no Christian in the last 2,000 years has had the real waters of baptism because the original waters of baptism going back a thousand years before Christianity was 
the hallucinogenic flow, Mm -hmm. which brought on the experience of light. We probably should wrap it up. You don't have a website, do you? No, I don't have a website. So if people want to purchase your book, it would have to be through the usual suspects? Uh, Amazon. I didn't didn't go through a regular publisher. Well, there you go, people. Get it through Amazon. I highly enjoyed the book. Very rewarding book. Uh, Excellently researched. Again, you'll get a good uh, scope of the Gnostics, the mystery, religious, shamanism, and all these... uh, ancient as i call them uh, on the show spiritual off-worlders so yeah good read uh well vance first thanks for being here oh my pleasure a lot of interesting information a lot of things to think about definitely whether you're on your rocking chair or smoking a little dube uh, it'll come to you well bob uh, really appreciate you coming on the show uh good luck with your book and yeah we look forward to the next time we chat Sounds like fun. And there you have it. Robert getting us real high, almost to the point we can touch the watery lights of the Pleroma. In our second part, Bob will continue to expand on what entheogens the Gnostics might have used. He'll throw some shade on some medieval mystics that weren't mystics at all, and some who definitely were. Bob will share the details on the actual mystic experience ritual that he follows, as well as give us some of his predictions for the future of mankind if it doesn't take a bong hit and just chill, and much more. So please become a member for the full dope. Only $6.99 for AV Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord channel for AB Prime members and higher level patrons. If you find value in this content, please help grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of a one-time donation on Stripe or the US Mail or even crypto. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always the merch store and an Amazon wish list. And don't forget the new Gnostic Tarot that is selling very well. And consider the Finding Hermes program, where we have monthly exclusive meetings and presentations, with many past guests hanging out there for some high-octane Gnosis. If you need help with uh, any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.